everyone. Welcome back to Lightbulb Moment, a podcast interviewing women in STEM, media, and entrepreneurship. My name is Jyoti Ramaswamy, and I am your host. Now, we had an awesome episode last week, and we have another awesome episode this week, so let's get right into it. I am so excited for this podcast. I have Jessica Mayer with me today, who is a multi-talented scientist. You might know her most from being a NASA astronaut and part of the very monumental and iconic first all-female spacewalk. So thanks so much for coming on. Welcome. It's great speaking with you today. Yeah, I'm so excited for this. You've done some really awesome stuff with, you know, NASA and also with astrobiology. So I'm very curious from the beginning itself, what first got you into wanting to be an astronaut? Well, I first started saying I wanted to be an astronaut when I was five years old. My mom tells me that story. I don't actually remember it. The The first thing that I really remember is when I was in the first grade and we were asked to draw a picture of what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I remember drawing a picture of an astronaut in a spacesuit on the surface of the moon next to the flag, that kind of iconic image from the Apollo days. And I never stopped saying it ever since. So I'm not really sure what it was exactly. There wasn't really one event or something specific that I can pinpoint, but I think it was really a combination of having this natural curiosity for the world around me. I grew up in northern Maine, and there are a lot of trees up there, a lot of time outdoors. My mom's from Sweden. Swedes are pretty passionate about the outdoors in most cases. So I had this love of nature and of the scientific curiosity and learning more about the world around me. The stars are so amazing from northern Maine because there's not much light pollution. So perhaps that had something to do with it. And then I think the space shuttle program was very active in that time when I was young. And if you can imagine it, we didn't actually have the internet. So we couldn't seek out all kinds of different information. We really just got our news from newspapers or from magazines or from the radio or from the evening news. And the space shuttle program was featured quite often. I remember every launch and mission details and things like that were on the evening news. And so something about that must have just captured my imagination and I never really stopped saying it ever since. And then what I'm curious about too is that you then went to Brown to study biology. So wanting to be an astronaut, what led you to studying biology? Well, biology, I think for all those reasons that I just mentioned from when I was little, biology was always my favorite subject. So I decided to pursue that because it was the thing that really excited me the most and I was the most passionate about, while at the same time trying to immerse myself in any space-related activity, whether that be in high school, going to space camp at the at Purdue University, or just trying to learn more while I was an undergraduate at Brown as well. But I really wanted to pursue both of those things in parallel. And you know that might not seem like the most typical trajectory to being an astronaut. People might think, oh, I should be an engineer or a military pilot if that's my dream to become an astronaut. But I think the important thing to remember is that if you're not doing the one thing that really excites you and that you're really passionate about, then you probably won't excel at it in the end. And, and most importantly, you probably won't be happy in the end. So biology was that thing for me, but I was still pursuing everything in, in the realm of space exploration. And in the end, it worked out. You know, Our office is an incredibly diverse place these days. It used to be that all the original astronauts were military test pilots, so there was one distinct path. But the exciting thing now is that our office is so diverse in terms of gender, in terms of the makeup of everybody's backgrounds, in terms of disciplines of study. So we have other scientists like me 
we do have a majority of people with engineering degrees, but other types of scientists as well, medical doctors, other roles in the military. So lots of different sides represented, and I think that makes us a much stronger office. That sounds awesome. Yeah, definitely a really interesting path to take, you know, going into biology to become an astronaut. And I think that it is really cool to see how things are so different now and that you can go into so many different fields in STEM and still become an astronaut. So I love that you did that. Yeah, so you actually did go into space after that, of course. You got a master's in space studies, which I didn't even know it was a thing until recently, actually. Um, But one other thing I thought was also really interesting was that you actually went on to become a NASA aquanaut, right? Yeah, that's right. So an aquanaut is somebody that spends 24 hours underwater. So usually, and able to accomplish that, you need to be in some kind of underwater habitat, And NASA had access to an underwater habitat called Aquarius through the NEMO project, the NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. So after I was at the International Space University that you mentioned for that Master of Space Studies degree, I actually came here to the NASA Johnson Space Center, right where I'm sitting talking to you today, and worked here as a scientist for three years. So that was when when I had the chance to do that mission, that underwater mission. NASA was getting interested in using this underwater habitat as what we call an analog for spaceflight. So if we want to train astronauts or if we want to test hardware or different types of procedures and technology, but we can't access space easily, how do we recreate a lot of those aspects so that we can still get something out of that training or that testing? So what we've done is use these analog environments. So environments that have some things in common, for example, they may be somewhere where you are in a relatively isolated, inhospitable environment. You might need a life support system to go outside, like if you're underwater, similar to needing a spacesuit. You are in a small, confined area with a small group of people working on a mission. And so that's exactly what this underwater habitat provided. And NASA started using it about the time that I was here, and they thought that it would be a good platform for astronaut training, and then also as a test bed, as I just mentioned. So they sent two astronauts at the time, and then a science representative as well, to look at some of the differences, what we could use as an analog for experiments. So there was an application process, and I was fortunate enough to get selected for that role. So I did a NEMO mission back in 2002 with Scott Kelly. Most people know that name these days in the astronaut world. Um, Also Rex Walheim and then Paul Hill who was a flight director at the time and is now retired from NASA. So pretty impressive crew looking back on it and that mission was a lot of fun living living underwater with that crew and my first kind of real mission type exposure. That's so cool but I'm guessing that if you're going to be underwater for over 24 hours there must be a decent amount of training that goes into that right? Yeah, absolutely. Training is paramount to everything that we do at NASA, especially when we're talking about going to space. But even when you're talking about an underwater mission like that, when you're living underwater in that habitat, the missions were typically about 10 days. Sometimes they did some longer ones. Ours actually was cut short to about four and a half days because there was a tropical storm coming, but it was supposed to be 10 days. And you are doing what we call saturation diving. So If you know about scuba diving, you know, the thing that is harmful and would cause somebody to get decompression sickness would be when you ascend, when you come back up to the surface, because that's when nitrogen could come out of solution and cause you physiological problems. If you never come up, you can dive for a much longer time than you would otherwise, because even though your body tissues are nitrogen, you never come up. So you don't have any of the deleterious consequences from that. So the saturation diving means you can dive for a lot longer. So if you're a scientist collecting data, 
on a coral reef, you can dive for longer. Or if you're using it as a training platform like we were, then you can also stay down for a lot longer. But there's also a bigger safety risk in that because, of course, you know, one of the things that we learn in basic scuba diving is if something's wrong, you come up to the surface. But you can't do that in the saturation diving atmosphere. It's ex exactly the opposite. You wouldn't want to come up because that's when you would face those consequences of decompression sickness. So a lot of different things going on in that habitat, but it was an incredible mission. NASA still uses it for astronaut training and for other testing. And now it's much more evolved even than when I did it. We use hard hat diving to make it even more similar to doing spacewalks and a lot more advanced technology. That's so cool. Yeah. So from there, eventually you also ended up at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. So of course, me being at Harvard, I'm kind of curious as to how that happened and what brought you to Harvard. So after those years when I was working at NASA, I had a wonderful time. I really enjoyed my job, and that job was coordinating life science experiments that were being performed on the space shuttle and the space station, the things that I'm an experiment for today now as an astronaut. And I had a lot of different roles supporting that kind of science. I did some really interesting things like the mission we just talked about underwater. But I got to the point where I, I knew I want, had wanted to go back to school. And at the time, I was trying to decide between whether or not I wanted to pursue a PhD or an MD. And I started just doing some research and looking into different types of programs. And I came upon this research that was being conducted at Scripps Institution of Oceanography by Jerry Coyman and Paul Panganis. And it was this incredible diving physiology research of animals. So emperor penguins diving in the Antarctic or seals and other dolphins and other animals trying to understand how they can dive for as deep and as long as they do since they're air-breathing divers just like us. But an emperor penguin, for example, can hold its breath for 30 minutes, and an elephant seal can hold its breath for two hours. So I was really intrigued by this kind of behavior and understanding the underlying physiology. So I ended up leaving NASA and going back to school, and that kind of started my new career in academia, working as a comparative physiologist. So I was I started off my PhD studying those diving animals, emperor penguins in the Antarctic, elephant seals in California, these extreme divers and trying to understand how their bodies allowed them to do the things that they did. Later on for my postdoc, I studied high altitude animals. So the same kind of thing. This time, instead of an animal holding its breath, we're talking about an animal that lives at high altitude. So there's, again, a limitation of oxygen. How do they physiologically, how are they able to do that? And I studied the bar-headed goose, which is a, a species of goose that migrates over the Himalayas twice a year, so over the tallest mountains on the planet. And that means there's only about half to a third of the amount of oxygen present than there is at sea level. So how do they perform that incredible behavior in such a challenging environment? That was then what eventually led me to a position at Harvard Med School and MGH. And I was working there with Warren Zapel, who was in the anesthesiology department there, and he had also had a big interest in comparative physiology in his past. He had also done some work with seals in the Antarctic, and he was interested in kind of getting into that again. So although his lab and his collaborators were very intensive on the medical side, on the anesthesia side, and on the respiratory physiology side, he wanted to kind of reinvigorate this interest in comparative physiology. So he recruited me to go out there and to continue to do that kind of research. 
when we started writing an Antarctic grant to go back to the Antarctic and pursue some other ideas. In the end, I was only in that job for nine months before this job happened. So things had only really started going there. Um, later, the other investigators that I was working with did succeed in getting that grant and conducting that research project. So that was nice to see that follow through, though, of course, I didn't get to go that time. But I was busy doing other things, so it was all well. Wow, yeah, going to the Antarctic sounds super cool. And I mean, it's also very fascinating how different animals react to different environments. But yeah, then you ended up back at NASA. And last year, you actually went on the expedition going to the International Space Station. So when NASA first told you about this, how did you first react? Well, that's what we're striving for from the moment we get selected as astronauts. And basically what happens, I was selected in 2013. And those first two years are what we call astronaut candidate training. So you spend all those two years, pretty intensive training, learning all the basics, kind of like kind of like basic training for astronauts. So flight training, how to learn the spacesuit, how to operate the Canada arm, the robotic arm on the International Space Station, all about all the different systems aboard the International Space Station, understanding how everything works, how to operate it, and also Russian language training, since everybody on the space station speaks both English and Russian. So we're very busy in those first two years learning all those things. It's an incredibly exciting time because your dreams come true. You come to NASA and you're doing all of these cool things that you've dreamed about for so long. And then after we graduated from that, which happened in 2015, that's when we're eligible to be assigned. So that's when we're all eagerly awaiting our first missions. And we knew when we got accepted that in 2013 that it would be about five to ten years before we flew, just due to the nature of you know astronauts that were already in the program that still hadn't flown yet and needed to fly before we did, and what's happening, how many flights we we take to the International Space Station, the number of positions available, basically. So I was told that I was going to be flying, and so in the end, I flew about six years after the time I got here, which was actually a pretty good track record. We flew, um, let's see, we flew half, more than half of our class within those, those first six years, so it was pretty exciting for us, and I was even on board with some of my classmates, but, you know, nothing really compares to that day when you realize that it's actually coming true. You know, your first dream, of course, has already come true in just being selected, and you know that you'll eventually fly if everything remains well with your health and everything's going well, but then when you really have that mission assignment and you start with that mission-specific training, of course, it gets even more exciting because it starts becoming reality. Yeah, I mean, that's what you were dreaming of since you were literally a kid. So, yeah, that must have been awesome. Um, another thing, too, that I actually just saw recently on Harvard social media was that you actually brought a Harvard flag into space with you. Like, all my friends saw that, and we just totally freaked out because it's so cool. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I brought up, so most astronauts usually bring up things that are meaningful to them, you know, institutions that they attended. So, of course, had my brown flags as well, but <laughs> I did I did fly both. Uh, and I flew an MGH flag as well, if people saw that one. But people usually bring stuff up that, that has some kind of connection for, for them. And, you know, for me, I'm really doing that, not for myself, but really for the people that helped me get where I am today. And you know, we're the lucky ones that get to be in space and, and do that mission, but there's so many more people on the ground that, first of all, at NASA that are supporting us every day and that are the true experts on everything, but really all the people throughout our whole life who helped us get here. And I don't really look at it as my mission. I really look at it as everything.
everybody's mission. So for me, it was very, very important to try to share the mission and share the experience and the excitement of it all to everybody on the ground. And, you know, sometimes if you can show something that means something and has a personal connection to somebody else, like for you with Harvard or for my classmates at Brown, you know, that kind of thing, it really resonates. I think it inspires people and, and it excites people and gets them interested in what we're doing at NASA. So that, that was my motivation for doing that. I love that. Yeah, it was uh, definitely very inspiring for me and a lot of my friends who I know. Um, Yeah, so leading up to the launch last September, were you ever nervous about the whole launch and, of course, being a part of the first all-female spacewalk? You know, I, I don't think that I was ever really nervous. I think the reason why that is and what we use really to combat that here at NASA is the training, the very intensive training, kind of like we, we talked a little bit about already. You know, we spend most of our careers as astronauts training far more time than we end up spending in space just because it's so important that we are ready to do what we need to do up there. First of all, the daily functions, because it's such a valuable resource and we're so lucky to be up there. And, you know, there's been so much invested in everything up there and in us. So it demands a lot of attention to detail and a lot of training, but also for safety. You know, what we're doing is inherently risky. We're launching on a rocket and we're living on a space station that's in a pressurized environment that, you know, really could be at risk from major emergencies like a depressurization or a fire or something like that. So it really does demand this intense level of training. So for those emergency, major emergency scenarios, like I mentioned, fire or depressurization or a toxic response, toxic atmosphere, we actually have almost a, a rote memorization style of those responses. And we have a very specific set of procedures that we get into for those so that we ensure that we take exactly the right actions and have the right response to that. But what this training really does, it, it almost, it really evokes this kind of muscle memory toward these situations. So I think that we know we're so well trained and we trust in our training and we also trust in our ground teams, the, the experts on the ground and the people that, that trained us so that it removes kind of that element of nervousness because we're prepared for it. We're there and we're doing our job and we're ready for it. So I really didn't feel nervous. I think I really just, just felt excited that it was all really happening. Yeah, for sure. That must have been like a lot of training to have to go through all that just to make sure you don't feel nervous at all. The thing is that one thing that maybe people feel a little bit nervous about or a little bit afraid of, you know, people always ask, is there something that, that you were afraid of during your mission? And I've heard this from other astronauts, and it's really true. The one thing that we're afraid of as astronauts is just making a mistake. You know, like I mentioned, there's so much invested in you and you feel this enormous responsibility to do a good job and to not let those people down and to make sure that all of your time is well spent and worthwhile. And so that responsibility, that's kind of the astronaut mantra is please don't let me make a mistake. And of course, all humans make mistakes and we're ready for those along the way. But because we're so well trained, you know, usually we're able to avoid those mistakes or recognize them and mitigate them as we go. So the training really just comes in. It's so many levels. Yeah, that's definitely useful for sure. Um, so then during the actual launch, what did it feel like, you know, being in the rocket and going up to the International Space Station and having people see that on TV? What was that like? It was incredibly exciting. I, you know, this was something that it's, it's really interesting because again, about back to that training element, 
So I was in the left seat of the Soyuz spacecraft, which means I was the co-pilot and had a much higher level of training than the person that's in the right seat, since I'm really interacting with the commander in monitoring all the systems for launch and for landing as well. So I spent a great deal of time in Russia preparing for that. I would say a majority of the year and a half before spaceflight I actually spent in Russia training. And we, they have some very impressive simulators there. So they have everything, all the switches are in the exact places, everything looks exactly the same as the real Soyuz spacecraft. So you're very used to it because you've done all these simulations, countless simulations, and you've had all this very intense training and testing over there with your commander and with your whole crew. So you go through all of these actions so many times, what you're doing during launch, what you're doing during landing, that it just be, kind of becomes this automatic process. So it was interesting, during the actual launch, I had to remind myself that it was the real thing, that it wasn't just another simulation, but your body and your brain are just so entrained, so you kind of feel like, okay, I'm just going through all these actions, making sure everything's okay, and then suddenly you kind of pinch yourself for a second and you think, wait a minute, this is the real thing. You know, you, you hear the rocket groan a little bit or it moves just ever so slightly and you realize that this time is we're actually going to take off. You know, we're not just going to go through all these thing, events in the simulation and then remain on the ground and go home at the end of the day. And so I thought it was interesting that I was so kind of busy and, and focused and concentrating on what I was doing that I had to remind myself of that. But of course, you know, the moment that you do take off and you feel that, you feel the thrust and the power of the engines and you feel the G-forces, the gravitational forces kind of pushing on you and you feel the separation of the rocket stages. And then you can see that after the shroud goes away from the, from the crew compartment, you actually have a view out your window and you can see things happening and you can... Then you know, when you get to space, you can see that horizon, you can see the curvature of the Earth. And the moment that you arrive in space, which is only about eight and a half minutes after you took off, you have finally, you're in space, you have this complete, this microgravity. And that is the most interesting moment because you're still strapped into your seat. So your whole body isn't floating or anything, you're staying where you were. But all of a sudden you see everything in the spacecraft all the little pieces of dust or dirt or anything that migrates down to the ground and to the floor that you never think about when you're on earth all of that stuff kind of lifts up and you see your pencil lift up in front of you and i looked over and oleg skripochka my russian commander was in the middle he had been to space before so it wasn't quite as novel to him but haza the al-mansuri was in the right seat and he was the very first astronaut from the united arab emirates so really exciting for them a huge moment for them and haza and i it was both our first missions we looked over at each other and our eyes were just super wide and we were just thinking holy crap like this is it this is real this is happening and it was just an incredible feeling and when, when you enter microgravity, of course, here on Earth, the blood is being pulled down to our feet with gravity. So when you don't have gravity anymore pulling that down, things kind of, your body fluid kind of shifts up. And it feels as if you're hanging off the monkey bars at the playground. When all the blood rushes to your head and you have that kind of full head and congested feeling, or you feel like you're a bat hanging upside down all the time. And that then that feeling just doesn't really go away. And, you know, after a little bit of time on the space station, your body kind of, you know, adapts to that a little bit. And, and you don't feel as strange or as full as you do in the beginning. Things kind of redistribute. And it just suddenly it just starts feeling normal. But in the beginning, it's a it's a very interesting transition.
Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's really fascinating. So, while you were at the International Space Station, what was life like? And um, yeah, what type of research did you do? So on the International Space Station, it's really a world-class lab. We have many national lab facilities, and we are doing science ranging from everything from how spaceflight and the microgravity environment affect the human body, so all the physiological studies that were, of course, my specialty in the past, and there are a lot of hot topics there. We've, of course, been studying how humans adapt to space for decades now, uh, but we still have some unanswered questions, particularly with radiation, other things like changes to the eye that the astronauts have experienced that we're understanding more about recently because we have some more sophisticated imaging technologies on the space station. We do combustion experiments, even flames burn differently in space. So without gravity, hot air doesn't rise, you don't have convection, that of course affects how flames propagate. And those have those experiments have applications for fuel efficiency on Earth and also for future spacecraft propulsion systems. We do protein crystal growth experiments, and that has a lot of applications for pharmaceutical research. So when you can isolate and grow these proteins more purely in, in an environment where you can't do that on Earth, then investigators have been able to create and study and create target therapies for specific inhibition sites on a particular protein, for example. There's a Japanese study that actually has a drug in clinical trials against for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Um, we've been studying other things like Alzheimer's and cancer and really interesting work. We do other types of radiation experiments, material science experiments, exposing things to the outside space environment on external platforms. We did several experiments with mice, so there were some really experiment, interesting experiments there looking at liver disease and the effect of circadian rhythms on those disease processes. Also looking at these mighty mice. We flew these mighty mice and they were so interesting. This was the gene for myostatin had been knocked out in these in these mice, and myostatin is the natural inhibitor to our muscle growth. So it's a normal part of our bodies right now and of other animals. Now, these mice that had that were knockouts, or another group that had actually a therapy, we were injecting the mice with something again that inhibited that pathway, allowed these mice to grow. They had much higher muscle mass, and they had. Uh, more preserved bone density as well, and this persisted in flight relative to the controls. So really exciting finding that there might be a therapy we could use if we're talking about sending humans even further and for longer durations, or also with great applications for life down here on Earth for many bone and muscle degenerative states. And that's one of the, the coolest things about the research that we do. It's not only helping us understand more about ice, about astronauts, and about space exploration, it's also helping things on Earth, whether that is from fuel efficiency of vehicles or for many different disease states in humans. So lots of different applications. <laughs> yeah, now I'm suddenly jealous of all the mice that got to go into space first before me. <laughs> yeah, there are little mousetronauts. <laughs> yeah, that's adorable. Wow, mousetronauts. Yeah, so of course you were in space for such a long time, and then when you came back to Earth, it was almost like you were in a completely different planet because of the pandemic that's going on. So I'm wondering if you heard much about the pandemic while you were in space before you came back, and if you did, like, was it what you expected at all? 
Yeah, that's right. When we launched, I launched in, on September 25th of 2019. So we really didn't know anything about coronavirus or COVID-19 then. And it was very interesting for us to see that unfolding from the space station because, you know, for us, our lives were not touched by it. And as we saw things happening, you know, of course, we didn't have an idea of how how bad things were going to, going to get, how severe the, thing, the situation was going to be, just like everybody on Earth. But as we're watching it, you know, 7.5 billion people on Earth have been affected by this. And suddenly there are the three of us up there, three humans that weren't affected by it. And it felt, you know, almost like the beginning of a bad science fiction movie when you show the yeah. pan to the space station and suddenly the entire Earth is wiped out by some disease or natural disaster and it's just us left. And, you know, so of course we were getting updates. We're talking to family and friends and we do get some news sources up there a little bit delayed and not with as much frequency as you would if you had your own phone in your hand or something, but we still do have the ability to get that news. And, you know, it was a little bit difficult for us to process though, because we're very busy are completing all of our mission objectives. Yeah. And if we hadn't known that, if we hadn't been talking to people or reading the news, it really wouldn't, it would have seemed seamless to us because, NASA did such a great job rising to the challenge and dealing with everything on the ground. Of course, they had drastically changed their lives, all of the ground personnel. They had actually set up a second mission control room so that they could, and we're still doing that today, so that shifts don't actually come into contact with the other shift as we're replacing the control team. We have two separate rooms so that you can keep people healthy and safe. But that was all seamless to us on board the space station and really just a testament to how NASA really rises to the challenge when you're presented with a problem like this. But it was difficult for us to, to think about and to process and understand that we were truly going back to a, a complete different planet and when our crewmate Chris Cassidy joined us with his two Russian colleagues they actually just landed so they've returned to a, a really not very improved COVID earth as well but I remember Chris telling us when he arrived you know guys you really gotta think about this for a minute and realize what you're going back to because it is entirely different this is a very big deal like you might want to spend a little bit of time preparing yourself for what it's going to be like to go back and, you know, we got there, we landed, and the hatch was opened, and there's a field of people wearing masks, and it was just something that we were completely not used to, even though people on Earth had, a, had a, of course, several months to kind of warm up to that and for things to kind of be a little bit more gradual. We landed in the middle of April, so it was really in the thick of it here in the U.S., and it has definitely been a shock returning to this new planet. I know April too, that was when, especially in New York for me, that was the height of the pandemic. So must have been so different coming back to that. Um, yeah, overall though, must have been a completely different experience coming from space to Earth. So I'm curious as to what it was like to get used to Earth, you know, physiologically and physically too, because of course gravity is different and there's so many different aspects. Yeah, exactly. So it is a difficult adjustment. And interestingly to me, you know, as a biologist, it's it's actually much easier to go up than it is to come down. You'd think that we've evolved as human species and for our entire lives, we've been used to this 1G environment. So you would think that it would just seem normal again. But if you think about the direction of forces, I guess it kind of makes sense when you get used to not having any of that force and now suddenly you do. And so when you first come back, you know, you don't really feel that great. A lot of people have some vestibular impacts, sometimes going up, sometimes coming down. I was pretty fortunate that I didn't have a lot of vestibular problems, so I didn't really feel nauseous or anything. and I didn't have many problems with my balance, but some people take a little bit more time to adjust to that. Of course, the 
the semicircular canals and all these processes in your inner ear are gravity dependent. And so without gravity and then in those readjustment phases, things are kind of going haywire in your inner ears and your brain's trying to sort it out. You do feel, especially for those first few weeks, you, you literally can feel gravity. You feel as if you're being pushed down in your chair. And of course, that's because you're used to not feeling it, you know, relative to what you've been experiencing. I remember it was really interesting coming back on the airplane right after landing. Uh, I was handed my tablet. I picked it up and it was the same kind of tablet that I'd use in the space station. And I thought, what is going on? Like this thing weighs 30 pounds. I mean, it felt like it weighed so much just because my brain was used to interpreting something else when I held the same object. It was really interesting. One of my colleagues, Anne McLean, had a good good version of that too. She said she felt exactly the same thing. And she thought, why did somebody put a steel case on my iPad or something? You know, it seemed like this thing just suddenly weighed so much. Um, and of course, that's just like our just our body and our brain and all of these motor neuron connections readapting to that. But yeah, it takes a little bit of time. I would say, you know, after a couple of weeks, I felt pretty good, but it took you know, a few months to really feel completely normal. Some people have a little bit of lingering back pain until then and that kind of thing. But I definitely still feel that floating is way more fun and I would much rather be floating, even though it's been six months now, I feel pretty much you know, completely normal, no changes, um, but floating is way more fun. Definitely would still rather be up there. That's, yeah, that's valid. I would also love to float and get to experience that. I'm curious too, would you like to go back to space at a certain point or like, is there any expedition that you would love to do in the future? Yes, absolutely. So I think a lot of us feel that way. We come back and, you know, I found myself thinking more about when I would get to go back than I did about reintegrating it with life on this planet. Um, but I would absolutely love to fly again. And basically when we come back, we kind of get back in line and we, we don't get to decide when we fly. Those decisions are made by our bosses and it depends on the need and the programs and what's going on right now. So, you know, it's usually not right away. It's usually a few years in between flights, but it really depends um, at, on what's going on, what programs, when, where we need astronauts. So I think for me, my dream would be to be involved with the Artemis missions. And the Artemis missions are, of course, that we are sending the first woman and the next man back to the moon. And that's something that we're working actively now at NASA. We're building the Orion spacecraft to enable that and the space launch system, which would be the largest rocket ever built, so that we can facilitate that mission back to the moon and eventually to go on to Mars. So I would love to play a role in that mission, whether it's from supporting from the ground or, you know, of course, my dream would be to be one of the astronauts that gets to go set foot on the moon. Yeah, that sounds like it would be super fun just to go back and, uh, you know, float again in space. That would be really cool. Um, another thing that I was also kind of curious about, too, I actually took a class last semester on potential extraterrestrial life. And I know that you're also researching life in extreme environments and astrobiology. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on potential life outside of Earth and whether you think this could be in extreme environments. Yeah, you know, it's a funny question because I think sometimes people think that they're making a joke when they say, oh, do you believe in aliens? But, you know, my answer every time is absolutely. And I doubt that they look like they've been portrayed on TV and movies in the past. And But, you know, I think it would be very naive of us to think that 
we are the only planet with some form of life. Given the time and scale of the solar system and the universe, there must be some other planet, some other place that either had life or will have life or does now. Again, though, with the time-space dimension, whether or not we'll actually have proof of each other and whether or not that that type of life would be anything like we have here on Earth, it might not be. It might not even be carbon-based. I don't. I think that that's probably improbable. You know, finding that life is a lot more difficult given that time and space dimension. But you know, we do have evidence of. We do have some evidence now that there is some kind of, of other life, and you know, I think that hopefully in our lifetimes we'll learn even more. It's definitely an exciting prospect. Uh, but there certainly is or was some kind of other life out there. I'm sure of that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And uh, yeah, I don't know what it looks like. It could be way more advanced than us. And uh, it could also be way simpler than us. But I think that it has definitely been out there at some point or it might exist going into the future if it hasn't already. Um, Yeah, so what advice do you have for students who might want to become astronauts in the future? Well, I would say keep pursuing your dreams. You know, it seems trite, but that really is the most important piece of advice, kind of like we talked about at the beginning and why I decided to keep studying biology. You know, that is very important. And if you're you won't if you're not doing what it is you love, I, I just don't think that you'll thrive at it and, and be happy in the end. But to be an astronaut, you of course need a degree in a STEM field, so science, technology, engineering, or math. That's the basic requirement. Other than that, I would say be well-rounded and be a good person. You know, we're very operational people as astronauts. Even though I'm a scientist, when I was in space, I was fixing the toilet, repairing and replacing different components on the space station, doing spacewalks, as well as performing the science. So you really need to be kind of one of these operational fix-it type people that is very well-rounded and has good, what we call, expeditionary skills. That's a big one now. With long-duration missions and living in confinement, you can't just be the best at what you do. You also have to be somebody that people want to be around and have some good people skills as well. So things like good leadership, good followership, effective communication strategies, how to take care of yourself, how to take care of others. All of these things are incredibly important and are definitely vital to getting selected as an astronaut and being a good astronaut. Yeah, so you mentioned spacewalks and you were a part of the first all-female spacewalk. So what did that feel like in the moment, you know, doing something so iconic? Yeah, it's interesting. That thought process of how that felt for me has really evolved since it happened. When I first got to the space station, that spacewalk occurred only a few weeks after I arrived. So I was kind of still getting used to life up there. And spacewalks are definitely the riskiest and the most challenging thing that we do, both mentally and physically. So I was very caught up in just making sure that I was going to be fully prepared for that spacewalk, knew what I was doing, made sure that I would be able to conduct that safely and you know, take, be a good crew member and, and be able to respond to an emergency if I needed to for my crewmate, Christina Cook, who was the other spacewalker that day. So I, at the time, was not really focusing on what you know, was to be the historical element because I had to focus on safety and, and accomplishing the mission. And so for part of it, you know, it was just Christina and I going out the hatch and, and doing our job that day just like any other astronaut would have and in our class we were the first class to be to have a 50 50 ratio 
of men and women. So we had four men and four women that were selected in 2013. And so for us, it was just normal to, we were all held to the same standard. We all had the same training regime. So everybody had the same skill set. So in one way, it didn't really matter if we were going out the door with another woman or with a man. But of course, that's not to take away from the significance of the event. And I think I was able to appreciate that more after the event and thinking about it. To be quite honest, I was really overwhelmed by the enthusiasm and the outpouring of support. I didn't expect it. You know, most people don't know when a spacewalk is taking place and certainly don't try to watch it on NASA TV. It can be pretty boring to watch if you're not critically involved with it. But that day, for whatever reason, it really did excite people and capture their interests and inspire people. And that meant so much to us. And I think you know, the, the reason why I look back at it as such an achievement is it's not a personal achievement for me or for Christina. It's really paying homage to these the generations of women and other minorities that were really breaking those boundaries and pushing the envelope and breaking those glass ceilings at a time when we didn't have equal representation and we didn't have a seat at the table. And of course, we still do have a ways to go of equal representation, not only for women, but minorities as well in this country. And that's something that has been readily apparent, especially lately, but it is very nice to see how far we've come. And so I think for us, the biggest feeling is really a tribute to all of those people that got us where we were so that it didn't seem like such a big deal to us. And I hope that they are the ones that are truly reveling in that achievement because it's really it's really theirs. It's really due to them, not, not due to anything that I did in my lifetime. That's, yeah, that's just amazing. Just the fact that you did the spacewalk itself. I definitely look up to you for that. I guess one last question I have is, because the name of the podcast is called Lightbulb Moment, I'm wondering if you had any lightbulb moments that stand out to you that made you realize something that still affects you today. I'd say the biggest lightbulb moments I had in space are when you're in the cupola or maybe when you're out on that spacewalk and you're looking back at Earth and you see the Earth and you realize how fragile it is, that this is thin, tenuous band of an atmosphere, that we need to protect it. You know, that was something that I thought a lot about, very active in terms of thinking from an environmental standpoint, even before I was in space. But that resonated even more loudly when you look down on the Earth and you see how fragile and special and beautiful it is, and also how interconnected it is. You know, we don't see any of these geopolitical boundaries, these man-made boundaries, the things that we've imposed on ourselves, and the land masses and the oceans are really just one big continuous place and all the people all the places everything is down there in its entirety together and that just gives you this feeling of interconnectedness and I think that that's really changed me as a person changed the way that I think about things and will help me appreciate that take that perspective change and that step back and that's something that I wish I could share with all of the world because I think everybody would really benefit from from having that type of perspective and that kind of light bulb moment was was just realizing that it was really happening you know when you're caught up and you're doing something and you're going from one achievement to the next and you're always thinking about the next thing sometimes I had to remind myself I'm floating there in the cupola and I'm looking down at the earth and it just almost felt like it wasn't real you know to think wow, this is it. I'm actually up here floating around the planet. How is that even possible? And I think that has really just kind of changed the the way that I look at things and and see the world now. That's so incredible that you got to experience that. Um, Yeah, so for anyone listening in, where can they find you online or on social media to keep up with you? I post most regularly on my Instagram account, but I do have Twitter. I usually double the post there, and it's at Astro underscore Jessica. 
So at Astro underscore Jessica, and then there's also an at NASA Astronauts account, and at NASA Johnson. All the different NASA accounts, of course, post lots of interesting stuff, but you can check out my personal one for sure. That'd be great to have some more followers. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this podcast with me. All right, everyone. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. We will be back next week with a brand new episode and a brand new guest. Until then, if you want to learn more about Lightbulb Moment, you can find us on Instagram at Lightbulb Moment Podcast and on Twitter at Lightbulb Moment, where the last E is an X. And if you want to learn more about me, your host, personally, you can find me on Instagram at Jyothi Ramaswamy and on Twitter at Jyothi underscore Ramaswamy. All right, that's it for this week. I will see you all next week.